we had this rule that we wouldn't hire anybody that wasn't happy. Like we hired happy people. Welcome everyone to another episode of Sorb Mesa Podcast. Today, sitting with us, we have Jack Greco, who built a multi-billion dollar company currently publicly traded in the NASDAQ called ACV Auctions. ACV Auctions is not only a fantastic story on building a unicorn, but it's also a few of the B2B marketplaces that at least so far has had a large and successful exit. So we'll delve into that in a little bit. Jack is also a very prolific uh, angel investor with close to 200 investments to date. And so Jack, I have a long list of questions for you. I'm really happy to have you here and excited to, to delve into it. Cool. Feelings mutual. Thanks a lot for asking me. Jack, uh, let's let's start. Uh, take us back for to, to the early days of ACV auctions. Um, can you can you explain maybe for our listeners what's the idea in its simplest form and what made you want to pursue this out of other options that you had around? Cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so ACV really got launched in 2014. So you know, go in your time machine back about 10 years, and the concept's simple. Um, a lot of people. I mean. We have the saying, every car is a used car. And every year, about 30 million of them um, trade hands. Okay. So in the U.S. alone. And a lot of time those go through, you know, dealerships buy them. Sometimes they buy them because it's part of selling you a new car. Sometimes they actually want it for inventory. But about a third of the time, about 10 million cars, used to go through a physical auction. And a physical auction is a place where the car would get picked up and transported to and a certain day of the week, it would run. It would get eyeballs on it for maybe about 45, 50 seconds, maybe a minute if it was competitively bid. And it, this is a dealer to dealer platform. This is where cars transact from one dealer to another, um, primarily from a franchise dealer, like let's say a Chevy dealership to an independent dealer, like Jack's used cars. And what we had seen was, you know, this process had been the exact same since the 1950s. So wisely enough, my co-founder, Joe, who's a used car dealer, said, you know, how, really Jack, how big are these auctions or how frequently do they happen? Sure. So a lot of times they're weekly. Sometimes they're bi-weekly. Yeah. The size of them varies. There's two large competitors, uh, Mannheim and Edessa, kind of always dominated the physical auction space. Uh, when you look at the map of the United States, one of those two auctions touches pretty much any major area, uh, which could be a decent source of cars. Um, those auctions could have been um, thousands of cars in a given week. Um, in some cases, they could have been, I, I would say the biggest ones maybe were, were, were bumping up to 10,000. And then there were regional auctions and smaller auctions, right? I mean, auctions usually were around something specific. You know, what a, the customer that was going would want to buy. So a salvage auction, which ACV doesn't play in, um, you know, we are in what's called whole car or functioning automobiles, but salvage auctions would obviously get a different audience than what we call high, high line or upper end cars. So sometimes they were sub-segmented, but like anything, there were, there'd be specific auctions and then there'd be these larger, more universal ones. So, you know, we decided in 2014, you know, everything else was moved to the, the internet, right? Um, you know, at that time, albeit they weren't as big, Amazon and eBay, and to some degree, the early inklings of places like Etsy existed for these marketplaces. So we said, why don't we just move this online? Let people, instead of having to go to a physical auction, and more importantly, 
each individual person have to understand the condition, the information on the vehicle. Why don't we kind of standardize the um, information asymmetry and allow you to buy and sell on, on your phone? And that's what we did. Uh, we started building a technology. It took us about a year. Uh, my two co-founders, Joe, who was the used car guy, um, and Dan, who was the technologist, you know, we, we worked together to ultimately launch our first car. Um, I think it was a Mazda Tribute that we sold June 1st of 2015. Um, and to be clear, this is B2B angle. So most of the marketplaces you've been mentioning were all or still are consumer marketplaces. So that was part of the innovation as well. You guys sort of pioneering the tech <clears throat> wave of the B2B marketplaces. Yeah. Now, look, it, it's we are definitely a B2B marketplace. So you and I, I mean, I might be able to, but the common folk can't go on and buy and sell on this, right? This is not eBay. But I'll tell you this, um, at the time we started the company, 93% of automotive dealers were family owned and operated. Into until uh, even though there's been a lot of concentration that's going on and some of these mega groups have formed more over the last 10 years, that's by and large still true. So the decisions, in fact, were very B2B-esque in terms of the size of the ticket and the speed of the decision-making. But still, I mean, when you look into what makes ACV and competitors, you know, I don't think this is unique amongst them at this point. Um, really compelling is that people are still making decisions the way you would in a B2C type platform. You know, when you look at the psychology of the way auctions work and the urgency effect around it, even though these are B2B, we're still able to use a lot of the attributes. And I don't want to say, I, I would say the same mechanisms and the same influences exist as exist on B2C marketplaces. It's just yeah. nice when you're, you know, average order value is $14,000. Which, which also it makes it at the same time incredibly challenging, especially, and this is, I think, especially true for SMEs. When your B2B marketplace is focusing on SMEs, you have the challenges of dealing with non-consumer folks with all of the expectations, but also with all of the expectations from a consumer point of view as well, to your point, because that's, they're making a decision as if they were a consumer as well. So it's, you're juggling with two worlds and trying to cram everything into one platform, which makes it incredibly challenging, but obviously um, the barriers to entry once you crack that code are much higher. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, if, if you look into the way like traditional, let's say a brokerage works or a middleman kind of works, right? I mean, what you realize is that when you peel it back, what we're trying to do, the technology in this is build a way for buyers and sellers to both have relationships with the platform, with us. We want to decouple the relationship, right? Part of the problem is that, as you can imagine, all the things they say about used car dealers are 100% true. So they're not the easiest people in the world to deal with. Um, so we said, look, if we step in and actually govern the situation and ensure that there's happiness on both sides, the worst, uh, we don't want a transaction that bothers one person to bother two of them. So really, our job was as much as it was, you know, to actually build a piece of software and a platform that allowed people to get to and reach and negotiate on price. It was also to kind of monitor or be a sentinel and step in where we needed to, to improve user experience. So, yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, when you look at, it's funny, I've, I spent some time um, since ACV working in um, uh, building material space. And so <clears throat> we happen to have a very large um, hardwood lumber distributor. Um, it's actually the largest in the world is right outside Buffalo. And as I got to know their company, exact same thing I saw, right? Like you would have this internal, this internal support 
of people representing the buyers and the sellers in a system of which things fluctuate off of. So I think one thing that's unique is like, you know, obviously ACV being public and being in a rare breed of B2B marketplaces that are public. And I'm sure you probably know the stats better than I do. Like the percentage of commerce that happens B2B that's, that's over, you know, a marketplace, a technology platform is much lower than what's done, you know, with B2C. And it makes sense. I mean, businesses are a little bit more traditional. A lot of these, and when you look at dollars, there are mostly traditional industries um, and things work already, right? You probably have the same phenomenon where you have, you know, a duopoly or oligopoly at the top, right? A couple people who have kind of gotten to their jockeying position on the totem pole and they're making money and there's no reason to really innovate until, you know, this very hot blade starts to cut through everything of innovation and all of a sudden you get something like an ACV. Jack, and you mentioned this rare breed of, of B2B public marketplaces or even large exits through M&A. What do you think was different in the case of ACV auctions? Is it a, a matter of you guys were a bit earlier? I know there's a bunch of other B2B marketplaces that launched right thereafter or maybe a couple of years after you guys. Is it just a matter of time? Is it a matter of vertical slash industry in which the B2B marketplace is operating? Or do you think you guys made a couple of key decisions that set you apart from the rest? So I think there were a couple tailwinds. Um, the automotive industry that we play in is a profitable one. Um, but people are still highly fixated on daily transaction. So you'll see large groups, you know, that, you know, it's, it's funny, and, and in a public scale, things get reported quarterly. But, you know, in these fierce retail environments, things are still getting reported weekly and daily. So you saw a lot of, I think that it had probably a lower threshold to entry in terms of a willingness to try technology, period, as compared to other industries. Um, I think what made ACV, and again, we had contemporaries at the same time, right? We weren't born in that different of a time than smaller exits that didn't go public, like Trade Lev, uh, Trade Rev, and CarWave and Backlot Cars, uh, and there are other ones as well. Um, so we all kind of had the same idea in different parts of the globe. You know, that was I think Toronto, California, Kansas City, and Buffalo, right? About as you know, outside of Toronto and Buffalo, pretty spread out. But I think why ACV amongst that pack had the success it did, and was able to raise the money and take this thing going to public where other ones couldn't. I mean, it came down to the fact, I think we realized this was a business of people. It was not a business of cars. And so when you look at other industries, I think that gets lost a lot. Like everything we did was with the intent of building a culture and building people that represents, I mean, I don't know what ACV is now, maybe 2000 employees, but all of them carrying this culture forward of understanding every transaction, every relationship matters. Like we are in the business of people and those people happen to want to buy and sell cars. Um, you know, I always said we had the best employees. It wasn't just, I mean, best is kind of a loose generic term, right? Like we had employees that understood that like the transactions that were happening were the only way a lot of our buyers were able to stay in existence. There is no factory that produces used cars. So if we were really going to break up this very large, very, you know, kind of underground industry, everybody's ridden in a car. Most people own a car. A lot of people trade in a car. So we exist on this every day. But if we were going to, if we were going to, you know, kind of fight these dragons, I always said, like, don't step on the tail of a dragon. You know, when you saw our market entry plan, you know, we would go around where the big guys were, you know, like Mannheim, Pennsylvania is the center of Mannheim. Like 
it was a, a, a considerable dark spot or a navel spot compared to the markets we would enter because we were trying not to step on the tail of a dragon, right? Because what happens? You step on the tail of a dragon, it comes after you, blows fire and you're done. Um, and for a long time, as all startups, you know, we were fragile. Our balance sheet was weak. You know, we had tens of employees and then low number of hundreds of employees. Like we could have been wiped out pretty easy. So I think we were strategic in how we grew. I think we appreciate the fact that there is no winner take all in any of these markets, right? They're one in the region. They're one by territory. They're one by relationship. They're one by transaction. And by being able to understand that, you know, like we'd always use these uh, analogies like, you know, it's like Lego blocks. You have one Lego block and then you put them together and you have a bigger one. And then when you get a bunch of those, it gets bigger and bigger. But it's all made up of that one universal atomic truth of the transaction and the relationship. Um, I think it differentiated us. Now, again, like I'm now an investor and I invest a lot in marketplaces. And so I look for those people that have um, uh, a reproducible, defined, um, specific go-to-market and accompanying unit economics that allow for long-term growth, right? I mean, ACV is a, you know, in, in addition, I would say the general business model of these auctions in general, based, based on the pricing and the service level that everybody is putting out there, you know, our positive unit economic and positive contribution margin type businesses. You know, I don't know how many of the markets are out there make money or lose money, right? I, I, I've noticed the um, allocation of investment does not directly correlate to the sophistication and the beauty of the unit economics. Sure. And I think we held those so true. You know, we were a numbers oriented culture from day one. So I, lots of follow-up questions, but I want to, yeah. I want to start from the beginning of one thing you said about people. Uh, and I want to bring this to your point, like this, everybody says this is a, a, a business of people and people are one of the most important things we do. Question specifically for B2B marketplaces. Do you hire to get the best people? Do you tend to hire from the industry you're going after or the industry you're trying to disrupt or quite the opposite? I want to bring, you know, maybe had some co-founders that were insiders in the industry, but uh, as far as the rest of the team goes, you want people fresh and open-minded that don't have all of the vices from the other industry. Like, do you, is sure. that a vector in your decision or not really? Um, so I'm not speaking from just ACV. I'm speaking from all the experience I have, because I've just seen this more and more true. So it's important. There's two important factors. Okay. F familiarity or muscle memory to some degree, right? Like, are you familiar with the way the business operates and can you become familiar with it? Right. A marketplace is a transaction based business. It's not go out there and close a massive, you know, a massive contract. There's no million dollar contracts in our business. There's not, there's million dollar and multi-million dollar relationships. And this is true for any industry, you know, but there, but when you're working in a marketplace it's purely it, like you need to make transactions, not feel like just transactions. Okay. And actually the way you do that, and I think the most important factor is not where they come from, it's their coachability and their disposition, right? Like we had this rule that we wouldn't hire anybody that wasn't happy. Like we hired happy people. And I mean, happy again is a little bit of a loose term, but like you realize that in business, technology kind of washes away a bunch of the grunt work that gets done, yeah. but it doesn't wash away the importance of you leaving the experience in a positive manner. So how do you test for happiness? 
in your candidates? I mean, I, I can tell you this. I never hired anybody off Zoom, right? Like everything yeah. was an in-person, um, an in-person interaction. And it really came down to God. You know, we hired people that had the right type of um, disposition, right? So think about it. <clears throat> in a lot of different segments, this is for ACV. I could say this for Air Expert, you know, the, the office I'm taking this call from right now. I could say for any one of our portfolio companies at Far Out, right? When you hire positive people that have a level of a, a positive outlook, a positive disposition, and a level of understanding and commitment, you're able to just do so many more things so much easier. The gears don't have to be perfectly lined up when you have people that are understanding and flexible, right? And a lot of time in startups, they aren't, especially a marketplace. You know, a marketplace, I'm trying to make a buyer and a seller both happy at the exact same time. And it's exponentially difficult. It's not just two times difficult. It's maybe five times the difficulty. Um, so, yeah, I mean, honestly, it was, I think we were really good judges of character. Like I leaned back on some, you know, uh, psych I could say that they're very crude or rudimental, like, you know, psychoanalytical, you know, um, kind of thought processes and rubrics I'd run things through. Like, I spent a lot of time learning. I don't know if you've ever, ever heard of the Enneagram. I talk about it a good amount, but like it's a really quick way to kind of put people into different um, categorical buckets with the way their you know personalities are. The argument is your personality is just an armor to your fears. So ideally, like by learning a little bit about that, I could sit down and quickly understand like what, what scares this person? How does that change their disposition? And are they healthy or unhealthy? And that gave me a pretty good sense. Did I, was I trying to hire this person? Or was I not interested in finding reasons why to hire them, right? And so when you make that your first filter instead of one of your last ones, like I don't know if you've ever worked for a company and they made you take like a personality assessment or anything, but it's silly to me. Why would you take that last? That's the most important attribute. So creating a quick, probably crude, non-perfect filter of letting the things through that are people that are accepting in healthy states, in happy states, like... Um, I think that was the reason we were able to endure. We took all the body blows any startup would. Um, we dealt with all the stress that every marketplace does. You know, we existed in times when interest rates were low. The company now exists in times when interest rates are high. You know, there's all these macro and dynamic factors going on. You can't plan for them. What you can plan for is where well, the weather's nice and the weather's crappy, the person next to you is going to be rowing just as hard as you are. And I think that comes down to commitment and disposition. That's great. Um, in, in so maybe the last point there, and and I wish we get we we can talk about this <laughs> for the entire for the entire yeah. hour. But uh, I want to cover other things as well. But just one last point here: How do you make sure that you it you show that relationship piece of the equation with the supply side and the demand side, while also maximizing the what technology is touching? Because if you're only doing relationship, you're just a distributor. Uh, in a way, or just an analog business. And if you're only doing tech, most likely you'll fail. You'll fail, yeah. like to your point before. So how do you how do you ensure that that <clears throat> optimal mix of both? Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, look, I mean, a transaction or a relationship is a little bit like doing surgery, and sometimes you have to grab for the tool, which is human interaction and touch, and sometimes you have to grab for the tool that's technology. Ideally, when those tools know how to work together, that's when you create something really beautiful and simple and elegant and where you as the operator don't have to do as much. You know, um, 
So where yeah. in the process did you see that in ACV, maybe a concrete example, did you see that personal, more relationship-driven process as opposed to a tech yeah. you know, optimal? So, so look, I mean, once somebody trusts is a real, I mean, it's a word ACV uses a lot, right? Um, and so like it, a trust is something everybody offers different ways. Me personally, I, I innately trust people. And if you cross me, you're dead to me forever. Maybe that's the Italian <laughs> way, I don't know, right? Okay. Um, there aren't a lot of second chances when it comes to trust with me, but, um, the idea around trust is like, I think where, I think to fully understand life cycles is where, you know, which to drop in. And that comes from a lot of experimentation. Luckily for us, there were a lot of selling uh, seller specific dealers and buyer specific dealers. And we learned and we experimented on them, right? Like when does it make sense? How much handholding do you give a dealer in the beginning? before you fully transition them over to the system. How often do you allow them to break system rules? Like, you know, everybody's got a phone call, a phone number for somebody to call. How often are they reaching and interjecting a human? Because as you know, like the more human time involved in the process, the more expensive the process gets, you know? So we had to think about it like human involvement was like uh, a spice and an overuse of it is going to ultimately create a relationship either the customer on either side didn't want or we didn't want. So it had to be a balance. Um, and I would say that it came from a lot of experimentation. It would be like, all right, what is talk time per dealer, you know, per month, per transaction, right? We would look at it different ways, you know, and by measuring everything, you're able to understand that. Now, don't get me wrong. I've met people much more concise than myself and can deliver information with more tact and more gravitas in less time. So again, these aren't perfect metrics, but when you start to think about that, like, okay, how much time did it take for us to close a dealer? You know, what was their involvement on the system? How often did they try to break cycle off the system, like to leave? How often were they asking for exemptions? How often were we proactively coming in? Measuring everything gives you the ability to put numbers around the ways you feel. Um, I would say 90% of the time, I knew what was going on and I was looking for data to validate it, but I was open to the 10% of the time when it just completely cut the other way. It was open-minded enough to know it had to happen that often. This is, so, yeah, this is, this is great advice. Uh, yeah. This is great advice, Jack. And thinking of it as a, as a spice that you're throwing in there, but you don't want to overuse too much. If not, it'll hurt your unit economics, as you said. So measuring all of the steps in the funnel and try to optimize to reduce that while knowing that it's key for retention, most likely. Yeah. Um, that's... And again, I mean, you got to, and I think, I think founders lose this sometimes you have to know how much money you're making per uh, one of my partners, John Fenske always says this, how long does it take to make a dollar when it takes a year, a month, you know, a week, a day, a minute, a second, a microsecond, right? You have to think about that on a personal as well as a business level. And so the thing with marketplaces B2B, I mean, you know, I, I work with marketplaces, you know, I work with one of them in the use cell phone space, right? Per unit. Now they get lotted together, but per unit, the amount of time you could put in is very, very small because the transaction is very, very small. There you have to lean on, and I will use the word tech loosely. It could be a system or a process that isn't necessarily electrical and digital. You know, it could be something else. It could be a, a shrewdness to the way something's built. Um, and then there's a company right now that I'm hoping to invest in on a far out called Inseam. By the time this releases, hopefully I'm the lead on the round. You know, where I'm looking at their average order value and I'm like, this is strong. We can afford to put humans in place. Now the question, can we put enough humans 
can we find and source enough humans in order to make this a very big business? Because the limiting factor isn't always economic. Sometimes it's that like it's hard finding good people. I mean, it is a it, it is the most difficult part of the game to make. Totally, Jack. And on the on the flip side, you've done uh, a lot of of things that were really right, and that set you apart from the rest. But any glaring or even funny mistakes looking back, or things that you would have done differently, or even if thinking about advice to entrepreneurs and things like, hey, you know, this we totally missed this. We should yeah. have done that. Um, and as open as it gets in terms of the question. So yeah. take yeah. it whatever you want. Yeah, no problem. Um, I will tell you as a general rule of thumb, do not bury your problems. They are a black seed that will eventually grow and you will have a much bigger problem. You know, At like, you know, that could be in technology with technical debt. That could be in the fundamental mm -hmm. way you build out your initial cap table and that initially laying out equity. That could be, you know, um, the way people are or not reacting to, you know, like, um, what do you mean by response. the, the cap table, like, um, giving well, away I, too I, much I, equity? I talk to founders. Place? Yeah. I talk to founders often where it's like, yeah, you know, like one of the questions I ask is a VC, I'm like, who is this? They have 15% of your company. Oh, that's somebody that did X, Y, Z. And I'm like, well, that's somebody that has X, Y, Z is not adding. I'm investing today and I'm looking at future value. Like that stinks because now you're, I want you to have enough incentive and you it, sillyly, stupidly gave it to somebody else. Now I'm sitting here being like, geez, I got to make a bigger option pool in order to make sure you're incentivized and dilution. Like everything matters. Right. Um, and so I would just say in general, like don't bury them. I mean, for marketplaces, especially when it comes down to customers, you know, um, you have to make sure that you're, you're bringing everything up and you're not afraid to discuss it. I mean, specifically, um, you know, when I think of specific things that I wish we had done differently, um, I wish we had treated more things like an experiment. Like I speak now, like we take the scientific method on everything. Like every other startup, every day I went into work and something was on fire, right? Um, <clears throat> and so sometimes you lose the long view on it, but the more you can measure, and I think the most beautiful thing about using a platform technology, you know, like for us an auction or for any type of marketplace is if you do it right, you track every single metric and you just have to know the relationship between them. So my guys at ACB will tell you, I used to get a report every day. They had every single auction ever, not from the last week or last month ever. And it just would come out as a CSV, every single bid, everything. I, every, and I, I was horrible about everything has to have a timestamp. If there's no timestamp, it's useless to me. And I would spend a good amount of time a day. I bet you I would spend two to three hours a day, pouring through data that the very first car we sold all the way on every single time, because like you need to be able to understand where things are coming from. Now we got wiser and start measuring more and more things. So the start point wasn't at the beginning every single time, but you know, that was the thing I wish that was part of our, the scientific method was part of our culture day one. Um, and I think it took us a while to fully adopt it into everything we were doing. The other advice I've heard you say or mention uh, at some point was um, more broadly about the investor updates, um, which yeah. you yeah. Can, can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So um, and look, I mean, we weren't great at them. Um, and now I feel a little bit like, uh, you know, what do you call one of those people that does one thing and says another? Like what? One of them. Um, but like, you know, as an investor, it's, it's difficult, right? Like there's so much activity, especially in early stage. I'm not going into this because for the sole reason of getting rich. And if you are, that's silly, right? 
because you have to take a massive portfolio approach. Plus you need to be intelligent. And, and to some degree, I always think integral to the business to know what's really going on. I mean, I can go buy some Apple stock and trust, like, you know, they're not going to listen to me, but like, if I'm going to put that same amount of money into a startup, I'm going to have some influence and pull. So for me, investor updates are an easy, simple way. Like I try and tell founders all the time. I don't care how little's in it. Like, I, I mean, I do care if it's just, Hey, how you doing? As long as the content's good and you are responsive to the fact that I'm going to maybe ask for some more things and see more things. A monthly invest, there's no excuse to not set on a monthly investor update. It's once a month. A good update, I mean, as the CEO of a business, you should be able to write in an hour. And if you're not doing it, it makes it really difficult to be able to chronicle both to somebody else the way you have thought, grown, failed, lost, all that stuff, but also to yourself for self-assessment, right? Like doing these updates is a self-awareness exercise. With the dawn of ChatGPT, I'm worried about people who are going to try and yeah, there's no automate excuse. this. People yeah, typically like, punt it away because they they feel that they need to explain so many things or they want to hit certain metric before they send the update. But it's so critical. And and the one piece that that we need to mention as well is a part of of the asks. Like to your point before, people that invested in you are sort of the highest intent, high intent people that invested to help. And like they see an email and that might trigger. It's like yeah, I actually do know someone in this in this vertical, or I, yeah, I can make this introduction, or I could hop on a call and talk about strategy. And so I think laying out clearly the asks is really really important. Yeah, I, I mean, look, anybody in venture knows eighty percent of the stuff's broken or has issues or could be better at any given time. Okay, maybe one of the five things you're doing is where it's supposed to be or ahead of schedule. And I don't care who you are, right? So a lot of times people are afraid. Oh, if I say this, you know, people are gonna know how screwed up things are. If they say this, they're gonna know the mistakes we're gonna make, right? And look, this is where, and I love angel investors. I was a very active angel from 2019 through 2021. Um, I had done a little bit before and I've done a little bit six, but, uh, since, but that's primarily what I was doing in those years. And, um, and I was foolish to a lot of this stuff too, you know, just the fact that, oh my God, this sounds horrible. Right. But the truth is these investor updates, I mean, all they have to do is they show you understand your North star metrics, right? You're a marketplace. I want to know your GMV. I want to know your revenue. I want to get a sense of kind of unit economic based things more so than the thing globally, right? Like I want to know that you're not blowing money on stupid things, but that's not what's important to me monthly. Like, are you getting better at closing customers? Why or why not? You know, are you getting better at keeping customers? Why and why not? Are your customers spending more or less? Why or why not? You know, I mean, there could very easily, I bet you if you and I spent the last 30 minutes of the show talking about it, we'd be able to articulate something pretty easy. That's just a base set of metrics that I'd normally want to see. And then as much quantitative, I always want to lead with the numbers. And at the bottom, I just want to know what makes you happy? What's on your mind? What bugs you? You know, I tell founders like, you should be keeping some aspect of a journal, just writing down what the problems are, writing down what the wins are. And then it's easy at the end of the week or the month or whatever, you're able to look back and say, okay, there were victories in here. When I'm down on things, it's easy to see things aren't that bad. And when I'm high on things, it's easy to keep me humble, right? And that's really the idea of the investor update. It's not like three things good, three things bad. That is better than nothing, but that's not ideally what I'm trying to get out of this. I'm trying to understand you're trying to produce a business which many years from now is going to hit a terminal state of profitability, 
of strong EBITDA and that Warren Buffett's going to want to buy, right? Like you <laughs> want to build that business. And like people forget, you ultimately want Berkshire Hathaway to invest in your business because that means you're mature, you're stable, and it's a good business, right? It's Speaking isn't of all about and glamour. Jack, you, you, you left ACV around 2018. Um, yeah. So maybe you can give a, a quick story around that. And then I want to ask you to wear your investor hat and maybe tell us when looking at founders leaving the company that you were an investor on, when do yeah. you see it? Obviously, yeah. sometimes it's extremely justifiable and sometimes it's extremely desirable. And in some cases, it's even a red flag. So like, when is it to you a red flag or when is it to you, um, you know, acceptable or even encouraged? Sure. So um, I did. I left ACV. Um, I had, I promised myself, my son's birthday is August 20th. Okay. He was born in 2015, uh, about two and a half months after we sold our first car. So go back to the story I told you earlier and realize I had a, you know, and I was two and a half months away from having a kid on top of everything. Right. Um, and I said that I was going to leave before his third birthday. Um, I knew it was time because at the time I was CFO and COO, um, and we've been trying to recruit and because of some phenomenon, not because of anybody's, you know, I don't think that anybody was intentionally trying to do this. We just weren't able to hire. Like we just weren't able to get somebody to fill one or both of those roles. Um, and I realized like if I extricated myself at worst, it would call cause a vacuum that would allow them because one person shouldn't be doing a business. Like I think we did our D round late in 2018, right? Like a series D business should not have one person in quite possibly the second and third most important role inside the business. Um, and when they're combined, maybe a equally important first role to some degree, right? It's just too much power. It's just like absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. You know, I believe in that. Um, so you know, I just knew that. And I had read an article that said, your first real memories are at three years old. And I said, I'm working more than I've ever worked in my entire life to an unhealthy state. And I care more about being a dad than, than taking a business to a place where I'm not skilled, right? Like, it's funny, my name is Jack. And I do think of myself as a jack of all trades, right? Um, you know, it's so I, I'm like, we've gotten to the point where there for any one of these roles, there are people 10 times better than me. And I realized I was there, you know, um, I real I, I wish I had better mentors at the time. I wasn't able to really talk through it much with people. You know, I, I didn't have an open relationship with like an investor where I could say, Hey, look, um, the, the company had gotten too big at that point. It would not have been appropriate anyways. Um, I was lucky to have a couple mentors that were really helpful. Uh, yeah, I'm a God fearing man. So I prayed about it a lot. Um, and, you know, I just realized now was the time and it ended up working out great. I mean, they brought in talent. It ended up that I was also basically doing chief strategy officer stuff. So in exiting, they actually hired three people for that role, which was great. Um, and I think they've got it to a really a, to constitute a panel that supports um, the company the way it needs to in those roles. You know, for a founder, when's the right time? Like, you know, what's a red flag and stuff like that? What I do as an investor and I tell people, I go, I'm not a VC. I said, I do not, this is as dressed up as I get. Maybe I have, you know, if I'm wearing a clean bill shirt, that's pretty good. Um, but, 
you know, I really am an operator that has the ability to put money in. Um, I'm a builder. I'm not a picker. Um, and I want to be able to be there like as an, as a, you know, as an investor, it's a reason why I take, you know, now through far out, um, I take an either a board seat or a board observer seat with every one of the companies that I'm in is because I want them to be able to have a human on the other side that can kind of walk both sides, can, can have a conversation and be trusted by the investors and have a conversation and be trusted by the founders and know what information should pass across and what shouldn't. I mean, it's always a red flag. I, I put the human first in all this because it is so much about the person. You know, I know at FJ, you guys bet a lot on the founder. So do I at Far Out. So do I in general. Um, and so, you know, I, I tell them, I go, it's a safe space for you to say something. I'm already in. Um, <clears throat> we intentionally don't tranche investments because we want our investors to be open to us. You know, so especially being an early investor too. I mean, we predominantly invest, you know, pre-seed, seed. We may participate in the later round, but like we don't have a massive fund. We have a $30 million fund um, <clears throat> and that we're going to do somewhere between 50 and 60 bets out of. Do the math. I'm not really keeping much for follow-on. Um, and because of that, that puts us in the boat with them right off the bat. You know, I try and say, I don't like to sit across the table from you. I should sit across the table from you the first time to negotiate some terms of the deal. And at that point, and that's it. That's it. You know, yeah. so, um, yeah. In, in, now that we're still on this, pulling from this angel investing, uh, sort of thread, what, uh, what's your take broadly on, on the asset class as a whole? I have a friend that always tells me, you know, angel investing and early stage VC is the best asset class in the world. Um, what, what do you like about it? Uh, how did you get involved initially? Look, I mean, um, so I got involved initially, like to me, angel investing, you know, so there's angel investing and then there's like high growth VC. Angel investing is you can angel invest in anything, right? You really can um, I have angel investing in traditional businesses as well, albeit it's a very, very small count and check size compared to what I do. But I mean, they're all just businesses, right? Um, <clears throat> look, there's wherever there's information asymmetry, um, that can mean a couple things. One, I tell people the seller always knows more than a buyer. So as an angel, you're never going to know as much. Like as a collective group, the angels are not going to know as much. Even free VCs don't know as much as the founder. You know, there aren't the same reporting requirements. It's they're early and there isn't like the actual threat of lying and being wrong and stuff like that. Like there is in bigger, maybe public, you know, in, uh, public companies. <clears throat> so as an asset class, it is, it is uh, you know, when you look at the chart, you know, the candlestick, you know, it's like the riskier you get, the bigger, the bigger the range and the higher the average is. But average is like kind of a sneaky number, right? I mean, yeah, like I don't know many places. I Like outside of a slot machine in a casino, you know, an angel investor at ACV made about 200X if they had sold at the top. There aren't, there's no, um, <clears throat> there's no game on the floor with a single bet you can 200X without some kind of real special, you know, counter-levered uh, counter type of bet. So, you know, the highs are really high and the lows are low. Here's why I like it. Okay. Um, I've done like a better two in real estate. One of them, they came back and they said, you have to put more money in. And I was like, all right, I'm done doing real estate. I don't like this idea of having to do that. As an angel, I put money in. What I can lose is my money. There's no margin call. There's no risk. I'm not, you know, I don't have, to have a line of credit behind me to do anything. Um, so I like that. Two, I like founders. So like, I want to be able to 
interact with them. You know, when somebody's pitching me, I ask, what is my relationship with you going to be like if I cut this check? And I'm going to hold you to it. Now, I have the threat behind me. I mean, I run, you know, a co-investor network now that was the it was built on the back of my network as an individual. You know, it was like, you know, I could always threaten, well, if I don't have a relationship with you, forget getting in front of any of the VCs I know because I won't know what you're doing. Um, but it does make it a little bit more difficult that way. Um, it's, it, it, it's a bag. It's like a magician's bag. You don't, you put your hand in and you don't know how deep it is or what's in there. Cause everything's in there. It's all, it's all private opportunity. Um, but I really enjoy it. Not because the, um, I mean, the only way to get an above average return. And I know both FJ, me personally, and far out, all three of those deciding minds agree on this. You have to have a large portfolio view on things, right? Um, you know, for far out, we'll do 50 to 60 bets out of our first fund. I personally am in 130 or 140 companies. Uh, I'm also an LP across 50 firms and about 61 funds. So, um, you know, you can see that, look, if I was that smart, those numbers would be way smaller. Um, but I also like it because there's a relational aspect. Like, I think exactly. People- yeah. That's, that's, it's not only financial. This is, this is more than a lottery ticket. This is potentially amazing returns, but it's also a relationship builder and it, you're sharing a dream of the entrepreneur. You're uh, getting together and building something together, even if it's from a, from a side seat, um, yeah. which, which takes me to my next point. Um, do, do you have a, a view on, on, the accredited investor qualification because like yeah you and i are talking about this and it's awesome and we're saying like anybody can do that but not really right like there's the accredited investor limits the vast majority of the population at least in the u.s to actually invest in private markets yeah so um there's there's pros and cons obviously right because you were talking about information and Um, you know Look, I, I, I think it needs to grow up a little bit. It's probably a good way to put it. I think there needs to be some type of limit in place. Um, mm-hmm. It does not make sense. Well, but but here's the thing that gets me, right? So it's not that, especially with the dawn of crypto, it's not that there's not risky things out there. So what are they saying? They're saying if you have a lot of money, you're smart enough to be able to make a decision based on limited information. It's really what parentheses it says, right? is the accredited investor um, definition and we'll put it in the show notes, but it's something like you need to make more than 200K per year or have a net worth of um, north of a million dollars, which again, excludes 95% of the US households. But right. there's way less information than if you want to invest in ACV auctions, we have you know, public filings and have to yep. attest yep. to a lot of regulations. In the private market, extremely, extremely risky. Uh, that's the setup. And, and I'll give you my take afterwards. Yeah. So um, what they're saying is if you don't have that kind of money, you can't afford to lose your money. Right. And that, and slash, if you have that kind of money, because it's money related, just to be clear, it wasn't age. Like it doesn't say <clears throat> I have to be trustworthy in order to go buy a beer at a bar. No, I have to be 21. Right. Um, you know, and it's not, I have to be good with a rifle to go to the military. No, it's like, I have to be 18. So what I find interesting about it is that it's based on something, you know, that uh, disproportionately allows the highest asset class to only people who already have money. If you qualify an accredited investor, I happen to be a qualified purchaser, which is even a higher level, 
you know, uh, but if you're able to fall into that bucket, like, oh, I mean, how is that not different than, you know, you're not, you know, you're not allowed into heaven, you know, it's like, you don't get to play in all the great places. So look, it's self-limiting. I, I think there needs to be some type of limit in place, just like, I don't think 12 year olds should be getting drunk. Um, so, but I think that it's, I think there needs to be a different way around it. Um, like uh, it would be take a many shows for me to rip through some of the thoughts I have, you know, at a deeper level, but, but fundamentally, I mean, it is a very, it is a high risk asset class. I believe that a startup should have to go through some level of accreditation themselves and, you know, not going public. Obviously there's a huge jump between I'm a pre-seed founder and that, but some level of qualification themselves and accreditation, and it should be able to be opened up to a broader population to maybe an annual limit, you know, and no matter what, it's going to be perfect, but like everybody should be able to invest 10 grand a year and whatever they want. I don't care if they're making 50 grand or 200,000. Especially if they're grand. literally, it's legal in 45 out of 50 states to literally buy a lottery ticket. So like, why yeah. wouldn't you be able to invest in the next ACV auctions? Uh, or you were able to yeah. get hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt for a college degree that you might or might not want or might or might not pay for your debt in the coming years. Well, So I think there's a, there, there are a lot of contradictions um, and I agree with you. Maybe you need some guardrails because this is extremely, extremely risky, the highest, the highest risk out there in the private markets. But at the end of the day, there's also highest reward. So like why, why preclude most of the population from participating? Uh, you know, I cannot wrap my head around it. No, it's a, it's a, it's a foreign concept to me as well. Jack, um, continuing on the, on the investor side of things and, and, and you've, you already gave some introduction to far out, but what are some of the things that you're seeing in the market uh, that excites you maybe around valuations, maybe around uh, trends or anything that you want to comment on? So um, just to give the one-liner, right? We're a pre-seed and seed fund <clears throat> focusing on B2B marketplaces, vertical SaaS, you know, to some degree we'll play with FinTech. For me, what excites me is again, I'm a B2B marketplace side guy. I, I love it when I see these opportunities, you know, we recently did a, uh, a play into the pest remediation space, uh, pest control um, in Boise, Idaho. You know, I didn't know the first thing about it. It gave me the opportunity to dig into a space that actually is very unique and has some unique characteristics to it. You know, I can use the hot topics like future of work or prop tech, like it plays a couple different things. There's a managed market aspect to the back end, but truthfully, it was just a really great, me a really great company that they set up um, in a place that, I had never been before and I didn't have like, uh, you know, like resident network in. So, so what I'm seeing is good companies are starting to not only, you know, come from, but I would say get appreciated more in these like tier two ecosystems, which is mostly where I fish. You know, this week I was on a road trip, um, you know, from Buffalo, which is where I live, um, through Cleveland and Cincinnati. You know, I've been frequenting places like Nashville, Boise, you know, the more rural parts, Boulder, more rural parts of Colorado, um, Pittsburgh, we've been doing a lot of events. And then albeit along the, what I call the string of pearls, Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Albany as well, or, you know, is my backyard. So I'm starting to see good things, like bigger ideas come out of smaller places. For a long time, these tier two ecosystems, you know, they just didn't have the knowledge set of, I think, thinking big enough. A lot of times, I mean, I've been in venture since 2009. Um, I started basically as a consultant, you know, and then when I found out I, I, I was having my first child, 
decided to kind of kill everything and focus on one thing. And that's when we started ACV. And then post ACV as an investor, really as an advisor and investor through 2021. And then, you know, as a VC starting in 2022 when we were warehousing. Um, you know, and, and one of the exciting things for me is like over time, places like even Buffalo, I always use this microcosm, like the ideas were smaller, right? It was like, I think I can do this thing. And I'm like, you're taking investment to grow a lifestyle business, which is great, but that's never going to change the dynamics of your community, which is another big reason why I do this. That's so uh, interesting because people typically think of, well, lack of resources or lack of talent, which is, you know, true, but it's also yeah. because of that, founders are also limiting <clears throat> themselves from the get-go with smaller ideas. And this is true for ecosystems in the U.S. and true for other countries outside of the U.S. Uh, yep. But I would, I would, I think this is a very interesting topic. You're going after, I would even call it um, like tier three ecosystems because tier one being Bay Area historically, tier one, tier two, you could argue maybe New York, Chicago, Boston, whatever. And these are even outside of the, of those big, metropolis yep. and and going after uh you know like buffalo again or arizona and i think that's very interesting what do you expect lower valuations or do you expect that you get the the first ride of the wave or what's the what's the from an investor point of view what's the thesis around going after these markets you know look the valuation doesn't hurt but it's not because of that i don't think that the midwest is undervalued I have a lot of problem with pre-product companies. And now a lot of these companies are having issues. Pre-product or very early revenue companies coming out of YC at a 25 or 30 million pre, right? Like I have issues with that. I met with one yesterday when I was in Cincinnati. Wonderful guy, wonderful company. Asked him what he raised. A million and a half on a 25 post pre-product launch. And I said, that's great, buddy. But I'm not talking to you as an investor. I'm talking to you because I'm sitting in Cincinnati eating one of these great Skyline hot dogs. You know, and I'm talking to you as a human being because you're like a 10x factor away from where you would be. I will say this, though. If I had to pick one city to take the startups in from here going forward, it would not be the Bay Area. It would be New York City out of the two of them. Yeah, so, no, I agree. And that was yeah. that was a way more uh, controversial statement a couple of years ago when FJ actually started in New York. Anything, frankly, that's why I'm saying tier one, anything outside pre-COVID, outside of the Bay Area was a bit tier two or a bit crazy. Yeah. Um, I, I let me know if this is this is resonating with you, but I'll I'll just take a stab at what I think you're thinking in terms of um the tier three cities or whatever the emerging cities let's call it. Uh, sure. I think it, there's a capitalistic view for sure. Um, potentially higher returns and potentially you're seeing more of that pipeline because it's less crowded. But there there might be also an element of you wanting to develop these these areas that are today underserved or overlooked by by investors. And, and you've had a very deep collaboration in Buffalo, for instance, and you're fostering that 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 community, which in turn should help you as well in your in your investments, because there's more talent, there's more companies creating. I'm sure the tornado that ACV auctions created in Buffalo is huge. And so that that sort of sets the stage for new companies to to pop up and so on and so forth. Is that a factor when looking at these these other areas as well? Yeah, I mean, look, um, look, I'm a I'm a parent, right? My my son is eight, and there's a lot of self satisfaction in making a younger version of yourself better, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of dad pride, you know, is probably a good way to put it. And I think the same way about companies. Like I want to find the next ACV, not to get a 200X. I mean, that's great. Don't get me wrong. If I want to be in VC from 39, the age I am, 
until I'm dead, I got to get some really good killers, um, killer returns. So don't get me wrong, but I want to do it because I want to be there to, to be able to be constructive and supportive. You know, again, I'm entirely in the boat by the end of the seed round and be able to make those companies ultimately be what they can be. Right. I mean, if you take, you know, 20 year view, 50 year view, hundred year view, the real reason I ultimately do venture, it's, it's awesome that you can make the most money in it. That's great. I do it because it can catalyze the biggest changes on this planet. Right. And as a guy that, you know, plants trees with his son and tells them that this is going to be here longer than you are. Right. You have to take a really long view on things. And if you actually care about the world, the entire world, we're going to have to change and fix a lot of things. And I truly believe that's only going to be happening through venture. It's going to be innovation with the right type of resources and the right people behind it to drive the right level of performance. Like that's it. So it's capitalism in its purest form. Like that's a, that's a great um, positive way of ending the, ending the show. But before I let you go, Jack, I want to give you some, some space to, if you want to give any closing remarks, tell more about far out, where can people find about you or the fund or whatever you want to shout out? Sure. Yeah. So thanks a lot for listening to this. Those people that got through it for all the people in Buffalo, go bills. You know, home of the, you know, 2024 Super Bowl champs. Um, you know, Far Out is a fund, much like a lot of them, um, in the sense that it's an emerging manager fund. And, um, you know, I, I would say this to listeners, people in general, whether or not they're LPs with FJ or anywhere else, you know, really think about angel investing, right? Really think about getting into venture, you know, participating in a fund if you're capable of doing it. If not, find some backwards way to get into it and sign the paperwork to be able to get in one or two or multiple of them. You know, I, I ultimately think that early stage investing, you know, is is it, it not just can create the best returns. I actually think in this short life that we live, it's actually the most exciting part of what you get to do with your money. You know, it's a way to affect change. Um, and though we don't give money and invest in companies, we just like the people and the mission of. They have to be able to build a solvent, you know, profitable business. We are investing hopefully in people that are going to be the next wave and a better version of us. So whether it's Far Out or anybody else, we have a website, farout.vc. I, I love doing podcasts. It was so happy for, you know, you to ask me to do this one. Um, and look, if you're a founder with a cool idea, you know, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn and I respond to all the stuff myself. It's probably because I haven't even set up a chat GPT account yet, but you'll get me. <laughs> awesome. <laughs>